Welcome to the World Bank EdTech Podcast. Today we're exploring opportunities and challenges for leveraging blockchain technologies and Web3 in education. This is episode two of a two-episode conversation. In case you missed the first part of this conversation, you can click back to our last episode. World Bank Senior Education Specialist Robert Hawkins speaks with Carissa Carter, Academic Director at the Stanford D School, and John Goodwin, former LEGO Foundation CEO and now Executive Chairman at the Learning Economy Foundation. Our World Bank EdTech team has hosted several Blockchain for Education online workshops, and you can watch these workshops via the link in our episode notes. How do you think about the properties of blockchain itself in enabling this openness, this transparency? of code and rule set, and this issue of composability, which is essentially the opportunity to build on other people's work. Do you see this radical inclusion and radical access inherent in the design of the technology itself? And or do you see the limitation in raising awareness of those that are maybe not as familiar with the technology to ensure that those properties are, I don't know, accentuated or that the the design of systems leverage these properties of the blockchain? How do you think about the technology itself and what people need to understand about the technology? The technology is still really opaque. It's very intimidating. Like it's full of jargon. How do we all get better about articulating what we know and we don't know? And this is what I mean about being able to know what the code can do to, to at least understand what does it mean to operate in a centralized system where there's a central authority, the transactions go through that authority, they get to decide what tasks are going to be taken on. To know the difference between that and then something that's decentralized and the qualities of both, like even just having that kind of fundamental understanding about what blockchain enables from that high level perspective, like gets you in the conversation. And I think a lot of our role is to, to figure out how can we get more people in that conversation. Yeah. And, and I think the point you make, it's still a very opaque technology. It, it introduces a number of concepts that are, are just not familiar to your average user. And, and the interaction with the technology is, is not user-friendly at all. Is this something that at the design school, you guys think about how to make the technology more user-friendly? Yeah, actually, we do a lot of prototyping of technology in the analog. So we have all sorts of different exercises with blockchain and machine learning and other types of emerging tech like synthetic biology too, where you know, in order to be a real practitioner in the world, right, you would need a highly specialized technical skill set and code. But how can how can we pull it entirely off screen? And then what can we create? Like with the start of the pandemic, when all students learning was going online, we thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we could create a print physical magazine that each issue deconstructed a different emerging technology? And it would be for students, middle school, high school age. And they're actually doing a bunch of different design activities that are looking at the ethics of those technologies. They're actually creating with them, prototyping with those technologies, but it's entirely analog. So you're not 
learning the code, but you're learning what the code can do and the implications of it. And so we did this, it's called Rep Magazine. Uh, we have the first issue out and we're working on the next three, one of which is the blockchain one. But it's things like that, it's tools like that where it kind of demystifies and it also you know, takes people's guard down. It, it makes it more friendly and approachable to work with something that's really quite sophisticated on the back end. What Carissa is is pointing to now, I think, is so essential for us to come to terms with at this stage in the evolution of blockchain for education. Because so often when you have technological breakthroughs, as we are looking at here, the technology is, for want of a better term, captured by a knowledgeable few who often then translate that through into value capture or extraction for a relatively limited number of individuals. And what I think is essential at this point in time is that we really do have some form of benevolent custodians that are really looking at the inequities within education and employment at this point in time and are able to straddle the Rubicon between the technological development and the needs of society that can be helped or enhanced and addressed through the technological enhancement and through that benevolent custodianship help ensure that the disproportionate amount of value creation flows to those that are most in need rather than a limited few. Yeah, no, during our community of practice, you were a huge proponent of how this technology can best support the disenfranchised. And I think this issue of, of making it more accessible, more understandable, easier to use is critical to this goal. And I think also what you mentioned around this flow of, of technology being decentralized and recentralized, and it's, it's a back and forth between these two dynamics. When you say benevolent custodian, what do you have in mind and what is your vision for how this technology might empower those youth that are perhaps out of school, that are overlooked, but still have skills or have opportunities to develop skills and their untapped potential? Let me start with the, the second point, Bob, and that's how it can be used to advantage those that are disadvantaged at this point in time. And one example of that is being tested out at the moment with the Motlow Community College in Tennessee, where the Learning Economy Foundation is actively working with the leadership at the community college to develop digital wallets for use by the students that can enable the students to connect what they're studying through to employment within the community. So there's a connection between the studies and employment through the employers working directly with the community college to break down the roles that they have within their companies into discrete skill set. And the skill sets then translating through into credits within the college so that the student can then clearly identify, well, if I take that particular unit, then that in combination with this one over here could help me get employed with these different employers in these different roles. So at the individual level, the student within the community college can ensure that what they're studying has direct relevance 
to the field of employment that they aspire to in the future. Then on from the reverse lens, the employer is able to see at the aggregated level, and that's important, not at the individual level, but at the aggregated level, what the students are studying that are coming through in different cohorts and what that will mean from their employment base in 12 months, 24 months, 36 months from now. So that's an amazing way in which we can get a stronger linkage between what students are studying and what the employment needs are, where often the curricula, because they run so far behind the evolving employment market, students often find themselves emerging without the the skills that they need to, to thrive. So that's a way in which a community college is really helping students that quite often find employment difficult post-graduation. We're also exploring ways in which we can be done in, in really difficult circumstances, such as refugees, where they find themselves in settings where they have no credentials with them as in the host community as a consequence of their refugee status, but they can be highly skilled uh, and finding ways in which they can be steered in much the same way as what you've, you've tested out with the Evoke program in the World Bank. I think there's a lots of opportunities for us to build on that and also the work that's being done by uh, UNHCR and uh, UNESCO and a number of tests uh, to utilize digital wallets as a means of connecting refugees into host communities. So these are all, all examples of how we can help those that are most underprivileged or or find themselves outside of the existing employment base in society. But if I can circle back as well onto the benevolent custodian and what I mean there, and that's really helping the transition from pilot through to scaling, in my experience, requires an awful lot of, of nurturing. And often what happens with technology is that corporations or new entities will find a great value extraction model that they can utilize the technology from and as a consequence of their firepower, able to utilize that technology into the scale environment. And as a consequence of that, the social sector, the social benefit tends to get left behind. And that's where I feel that if we have benevolent custodianship that involves a community of practice that will enable us to ensure that the technology is also being steered towards those that are most disadvantaged, I believe we can truly get a much bigger societal breakthrough. The potential for these tighter linkages between employers and community colleges and what students are studying, that almost can't be underscored enough because the vast majority of people don't have linear careers. 30 years after you attended school, if you attended school at all, right, is some cobbled together compilation of all the experiences you've had in your life, right? And if, if all of a sudden now we have a, a way to capture the value that the huge range of experiences that we have have had, like, can come together and be something, that's incredible. I mean, think about motherhood as one of these. Half of our population is women that usually have to take time off in order to raise children. What if we actually give value to what that is? So I'm not talking about like just coming back to the career you had. What is the way that you're talking about? Here's the skills that you've gained from from being a mother, from working and running your household that will be seen as a benefit that comes as a credential 
for that, that next piece of employment that you may have. On one hand, yeah, our careers are not linear, but in another is like our current education and employment system disadvantages the female half of our population to begin with. And something like blockchain and its ability to ascribe value to things that don't necessarily always have value to them in society is huge. No, you take the refugee example, who are some of the most courageous entrepreneurial class of people who will come to a host country and those skills are not recognized. And how can you tap into them as resources in their new countries? And I think this issue that John raised around relevance of skills and then on the private sector side, the trust of those skills is inherent in in the challenges we face across the education system, particularly at the higher education and the technical education systems around the world. And and we at the World Bank, these are two themes that we focus on quite a bit. And just to circle back again, it's important to define this idea of digital wallets. The metaphor is appropriate. It is a wallet that you own, that you hold. And instead of dollar bills in your wallet, you can hold a series of credentials that you own and can use as you see fit. And, And the technology behind that allows you to have ownership over those credentials, as opposed to those credentials being owned and only accessible through a third party. And this is another area, this trust issue that many of our projects in the bank, particularly at higher education, are looking at, of how do you use the blockchain to take fraud out of the system to ensure that these credentials that are presented are indeed real and that the private sector, the employer can indeed trust them. Recognition of skills is truly widened through the potential of a digital wallet. Carissa mentioned women taking time off to care for their children. During that time, they also develop a a wide range of skills in terms of time management that historically has not been recognized. We're increasingly in a, a society where people find themselves taking care of children and managing and caring for elderly parents. Again, these are all things that are not recognized in traditional skill systems and yet can really enhance the resilience of an individual, enable them to to manage complexity and organizations in ways that we haven't acknowledged up until date. And it through the digital wallet, we can really encourage lifelong learning, the opportunity for individuals to skill and reskill and have the confidence of knowing that that will enable them new avenues of contribution, which is something that has really been the the opportunity of the privileged few up until now. And I really think that that is something that we can unlock. Yeah, I think one of the fascinating areas of research that we've talked about during the community of practice and that actually Lego is is working with the World Bank on uh, is this this issue of measurement of skills, particularly the the harder to measure skills, the creativity, the resilience, the agency, the problem solving skills. And I think this will be kind of essential to realize this vision that there, there is a more effective way than maybe trusting your accrediting body that indeed you've developed these skills to what we talked about in the community of practice of how you actually get the measurement of these skills down to the classroom level at the micro-credential level, which I think will involve more of a 360-degree view of not just expert assessment, but also peer assessment, self-assessment, and computer measures as well, which I think will be um, an important aspect of ensuring that when a credential is given for one of these skills, it can be trusted by, by the employer. 
This is a good segue into how we're thinking about the future. And Chris, I'd like to I'd like to come back to you on you know, five to ten years from now. What do you see as the evolution of blockchain technology? What are some of the key issues that you think we need to address, and how will it impact? the issues we've been talking about, student learning, skills development, and empowering young people to reach their full potential. For me, it's really about that next generation. How are we empowering them to continue to be co-creators? Like, I don't think that it's us creating for them. I think it's how are we now bringing the technological skills creation into K-12 classroom. In the same way that you're learning math, how are you learning to build with blockchain in a kindergarten class? How are we imparting those skills and some of the decisions that come with them in terms of the ethics of creation? Like, how are we pulling that into classrooms with young people? That might seem like bold, et cetera, but like, if you look back, like social emotional learning never used to be the prevalent thing. This building with the technology itself and it's more than just learning how to code, right? It's again about understanding the implications in this world where everything scales so quickly and moves so fast and gets beyond us without us even knowing what's happening. How is technology not something that's just done to you, but you're also a part of the creation of it? It's how are we bringing this teaching into those classrooms? How are we imparting teachers to teach our students in this way? Most of us are not experts in something like blockchain. That feels like a huge design challenge. So this is a good a good segue for you, John, in thinking about putting yourself in the shoes of a, a minister of education who is responsible for developing a system that will prepare students for the future and, and for being active participants in that future. I think what Carissa is alluding to is perhaps some changes in, in pedagogy, some changes in curriculum, some changes in the way that we think about multiple actors in the system engaging with students. You're the minister of XYZ country. What, what actions do you think are important to take today to realize this future? Yeah, well, I should start Bob, by saying that being the minister of education is definitely not a job I aspire to because I think it's incredibly tough to conduct the role where, you know, the fruits of your labors are not going to manifest themselves for quite some time, but you'll be judged in the present. So it's a really tough role. So I should start by making that statement. However, in the pure fantasy world where I'm a minister of education, I think I try and approach education as a platform for optimistic growth for all versus a process of aggressive ranking for the elite. And I look to do that by unlocking the full breadth of skills for each individual for lifelong social contribution versus what we often see in many countries, which is a race to the academic academic top in the first 21 years of an individual's life that sadly often sets the course for the remaining 60 years. And that's going to require a huge social mindset shift for which is we can't underestimate. And that's where I believe that whilst the technology, the fantastic technology that we've been speaking about can enable that breakthrough. Adoption, I think, is only going to be achieved if we approach it with a true ecosystem mindset, thinking about all of the stakeholders and making sure that they're being brought along in an appropriate manner and being able to contribute to the design approach, the co-creation approach, as Carissa's mentioned, so that we can get a new system of learning which truly uh, respects 
the unique value of every individual and enables them to use that uniqueness with a meaningful contribution into society. So that's what I believe that we, we're on the precipice of, and I'm very optimistic that we can deliver. You know, that's a fantastic vision. I think if you, if you look at uh, all of those learners that are outside of the formal education system, those that are neither working nor employed or, or those that are employed but need to be lifelong learners, this is a huge segment of population that our education systems need to pay attention to. And I, and I love the, the idea of providing access for all. Of, of providing unlimited opportunity, that there are many different ways to achieve that education and the skills we're talking about, that there are indeed a range of skills that can and should be developed. And as you'd mentioned before, this kind of, again, going back to the, the, the analogy of Lego, you spent so many years of having these Lego building blocks that kind of build out your potential and, and your, your future self. And inherent in all of this, I think, is this, this concept of failure and that it's it's essential that, as Carissa was was highlighting, that education be a verb and be a, an active process. And by definition, when you're acting and trying things, you're failing. And, and through that failure is, is learning as well that oftentimes isn't uh, appropriately captured. This has been a fantastic conversation. I, I want to offer both of you an opportunity to, to share one book or podcast that you recommend and, and a call to action for our, our listeners. Let me, uh, let me start with you, uh, John. Thanks, Bob. Well, I recommend those that are interested in this area to read a book called Failure to Disrupt by Justin Reich, who's from MIT. And it's a, a great exploration of why technology alone can't transform education, but the transformation needs to be a lot, much more holistic. So it really gets at the, the last point that I was making around the importance of us thinking at the, the total system level. Call to action, I would encourage people to really get up to speed on things that are happening in the World Bank community with regards to blockchain in education. Check out the Learning Economy Foundation website where you can see some great examples of how the technology can be brought to life in different contexts. And then as a consequence of that, figure out how you can throw your own unique skills into that societal change to help those inequities be removed. I love that. Get engaged. And, and we do have all of the six sessions that I'd mentioned previously uh, on our website and are planning to do more in the coming months. Carissa. Yeah. The book that I'm reading right now isn't necessarily directly in this space or what you think of, but I'm reading The Ministry for the Future, Kim Stanley Robinson, which is science fiction, but it's also it's also you know clearly not I look to authors like this to help us paint pictures of what our next gen worlds might be, right? We're just 20, 30 years from now. I really like authors that can can paint those scenarios for us. And so I am actually halfway through this book and like my my mind is blown and I even though I'm halfway there I wholeheartedly recommend recommend you pick it up and use it as a provocation for what is the world that we're leaving the next generations. A call to action, right? Remember that everything leaves a wake and that wake could be positive, that could be neutral, that could be something negative. So think about no matter what kind of work you do, what you bring into the world, what kind of creator, educator you are, think about like what could go right with this, but also what could go wrong, even if it's working correctly. If I'm going to put a new piece of tech out into the world, 
of course I want to talk about all the amazing change that it could affect, but it would be so irresponsible if I didn't talk about the potential unintended negative consequences. And wow, what what a much better time to do that now before I've launched it than, you know, 10 years later when all of a sudden it's, you know, had some sort of unintended adverse effect on social behavior, people's health, etc. Keep that optimism of it working great, but also like what could go wrong and and let's normalize having that conversation now. Yeah, and I think that's that's also in line with the the idea of failure and, and failure being being okay and kind of recognizing that in in any any system there will be both pros and cons and, and technology is, is neutral. I, w- I want to add kind of one more um, idea and share with our listeners some work that this community will be doing and and again the, the coming months around the the idea of digital content and educational digital content. You you mentioned Kim Stanley Robinson. He participated with us a few years ago with Arizona State University in what we call a creative hackathon in building out new stories for learning about global grand challenges. We're working again on a set of stories around migration with artists, storytellers, educationalists. Stan was actually part of that group that that built out, I think, some of the ideas that are coming out in, in Ministry of the Future around climate change, around new organizational systems, and around equity. So I encourage all of our listeners to kind of stay tuned. We did do a podcast earlier in the year around the initial phase of this creative digital content initiative, and we're going into phase two now. And part of the next phases with relation to blockchain, we'll be looking at how to empower creators locally to own these assets through what we call NFTs, as well as how you can think about new organizational systems in the form of decentralized autonomous organization, which are two areas that the Learning Economy Foundation is working on as well. So I'm looking forward to collaborating with both of you on this next generation of research that we want to do and to recognize both the opportunities, but also be very cognizant of the challenges and the unintended consequences of our work. So again, thanks so much to both of you for this conversation. It's been fantastic. And uh, uh, once again, uh, looking forward to further collaboration. 